The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize, in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year, the Wainwright Prize for UK Nature Writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright by Francis Lincoln, the publishers of the famous fell walking series, The Pictorial Guides to the Lakeland Fells. There's a strong link between walking and writing, whether it's striding out across fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change. And the two shortlists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing, both in the UK and around the world. Working with Nature by Jeremy Persglove is the story of Jeremy's lifetime of work as an ecologist which draws together his experiences, practical and first-hand, of gardening on a global scale, as he seeks to answer the question, how can we defend the landscape by making it earn its living? Jeremy, welcome to Planet Pod, and thanks for joining us. Very nice to be here. Your first book, Taming the Flood, was published in 1986, so it's fair to say this one's been a while in the making. Um, what prompted you to write Working With Nature now? Well, I've been writing it for 25 years, really, <laughs> because I, um, I left the water industry, which is the basis of my Taming the Flood story, and, uh, in 1989. And in the early 90s, I, I found myself working for a, a big civil engineering company, and uh, they were sending me all around the world to look at the potentially dreadful things they were doing, which was building dams and motorways and sea defences and big, uh, also land use with big tropical crops like um, palm oil and so on. So I was doing in, on a global scale what I'd been doing in the water industry before, which was trying to see ways which make it less bad, really. It's very enlightened of an engineering company to, to employ the enemy, in inverted commas, as an ecologist to go out and uh, advise them as to how they could be better, because surely some of that had a financial implication for the business and they had to do things differently and more costly. Well, I was lucky in a way at the time I was working, because when I first started in the water industry, I mean, one was very unpopular. I remember seeing my um, uh, photograph pinned to the middle of the dartboard in the engineer's recreation room. <laughs> and I thought, I'm winning! <laughs> And the thing is, um, with the, with Mots, I found the engineers were brilliant, uh, actually, because they're problem solvers. So you really had to widen the problem. If it was a, if the river was no longer a channel conducting flood water off the land, but also something to do with wind in the willows and kingfishers and fishing and having a picnic, actually the engineers would get that because they they're clever problem solvers um, and so with the wider brief and so I think they all found it quite fun really um, although I was obviously a pain in the neck on certain occasions. So your, your experience covers a huge range of countries doesn't it and you've moved from cocoa farming in Ghana to the orchards of Kent. 
are we better as a nation in the UK? Are we worse? If you had to put our, our behaviours, because I'm thinking back to your first book on flooding and, and how appalling flooding has been here recently, partly because of the way we've built on floodplains and we haven't managed our, our water flows properly. Do you, how do you think we stack up in the UK against um, other nations in terms of our um, you know, environmental th- impact? Well, there is a tradition in England of um in britain of of as you rightly point out the fell walking and you know the whole business of countryside is is deep in the english and british culture so i think that's kind of helped in terms of solving the problems i wouldn't like to say um i mean it's brilliant overseas in some countries because you can actually go off with the engineer and look at the road and kind of say this is going through the wrong bit of forest. Just move it, please. And you get straight into the minister and it will be done. Whereas if you try and do that in the UK, oh dear, you know, there's panoplies of administration and worry. So that's, um, it's often quicker to do things overseas. But I think we, we're, it's got unrecognisably better since I've been involved in this stuff. Um, I mean, to think that in the end, having done roads, I did a roads equivalent of the rivers, and we at Hindhead in Surrey, where the A3 goes through the Devil's Punch Bowl, which is a gorgeous um, um, co- uh, common nature reserve full of lovely night jars and Dartford warblers and things. And this awful road went through the middle. And once everyone was on board, we put the whole thing, we couldn't widen it because it was protected on both sides, so they put it in a tunnel. So that so six miles of road disappeared under heather and bracken and and um, wildlife and public access. So that I mean, that's fabulous, but it's not always as good as that, of course. And I don't want to get bogged down in that, but I would say the counter to that, and let's not go there, please, too much, is high speed two, which in my experience has been very poorly. Done. Yes, we probably shouldn't go on to high speed too. No, I think that absolutely will be not. That would divert we're, we're, the entire entire podcast. And, 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 and I haven't even mentioned it in the book either. Yeah, it's such and a we complicated both thing. have steam coming out of our ears. Yes. So. <laughs> so I mean, the answer to your question is mixed yeah. on both fronts. It's a it's a difficult balance, this, isn't it? Because I mean, as you say, it was your phrase that how you know how can the landscape earn its keep and still be defended? It's that difficult balance, isn't it? And needing progress is needed. You know, we do need to grow crops. We do need cocoa. We I know we debate whether we need palm oil, but we do need crops. So so there's always that balance, isn't there, between how we protect the the part of the landscape we need to protect and how we um, square that against the need for 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 modernization and for fertility and for production so so do you find some of those problems are just intractable the one has to win out well, over the, the very other. encouraging thing about my whole life's experience in this all around the world is some of them are intractable there are some schemes which should never happen i mean you shouldn't drain the somerset levels for example which was once proposed um, but mostly you can do a lot of things you can do things, most areas, you can do things well or badly. So just taking those two ones, palm oil and cocoa. Um, palm oil first. I think, you know, I was presented with this and I, was, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. The rainforest burned and chopped down and all this. And I was asked to look at these and said there were some. I went out to look and said, no, you can't in New Guinea. You just cannot do this scheme here. And they took it on board and I, there was always canny reasons said well actually it's geologically unstable and earthquakes it will be also oh yeah all right so you cannily look for things but also with the palm oil as with most things 
we were putting 10 to 20 percent of that land keeping it out of the, the the crop and in these huge estates which are you know they're so big they're the size of rutland which is the county i live in in england um that if you put 20 percent all along the rivers not to be touched then within the girdle of that um that much controlled area because the palmer states are are powerful they, they, they run the show you've got you've got substantial reserves which were protected within the system so then you you could um, make sure the mills didn't pollute the place look after the workforce and 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 label it all up so that hopefully people buying the stuff can then from a reputable person can do it properly but quickly i'll go on to the cocoa because that's really clever and that those ways of which is agroforestry those ways of producing uh, crops are magic because you're not just modifying a rather nasty monoculture it's integral the cocoa tree which is a beautiful thing grows within the forest so in those places there are people roaming around trying to chop bits down for, for their own they're poor they're, they're not wicked they're just chopping and burning forests but if you've got the cocoa farmer in the forest knowing his cocoa trees need the shade he will defend that patch of forest and then so the whole thing is kind of the actual growing of the cocoa which is then the cocoa trees have got orchids growing on them and toucans nesting in them are 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 all part of the system so when you find those and there are quite a few examples in my book that's magic that's a really positive image because particularly when you're talking about the positive way to grow palm oil because it's seen as the kind of you know the, the bugbear isn't it it's one of the things that we yeah. shouldn't touch we're meant to ignore so i'm getting this strong sense that you feel that there's a you know global conservation and our fight against climate change is possible but we need to do it in a way in which we're really in harmony with the communities that we are working with and with the landscapes how do you feel your your book because you're on the global conservation shortlist how do you feel it contributes to the wider debate about global conservation and climate change well it, it does it, it certainly has lots to say about the climate change um in that it's central to it is an attack on intensive monocultures and they have been really bad in terms of of um, uh, of worsening climate. For example, if you if you chop down all the rainforest um, and burn it, the carbon goes up, and then you're losing the the sink, the carbon sink, which is the forest. So keeping parts of it are is helping that. So you're modifying. And the same goes if you were looking at a a British cereal farmer, because I mean, cereal farming in England has created the most hideous agribusiness landscape. And, and you just have to look out the window and see these hedgeless square miles of cereal crops when they're at their worst. Um, and that's that's really, um, that can be done also. There's some very good examples near where I live where the farmers have kept again 10 to 20% out of, out of the um, crop and you're getting all those things to work. And also they're looking after the soil because one of the things that's happened is because of intensive farming here, the floods have been much worse because you get these tractors that now look like army tanks. They're so big and they pound the topsoil. So it's pan, so it's solid. So the water can't flow through. It flows down over the hill, over the top, straight into a straightened brook, straight down to the town where it's flood. So the consequences of, of um, climate change, as well as the causes, are all tied up with the land use, which is... I think the most single important thing um, 
that I'm writing about. Well, this engineering is as well, but the engineering taught us the optimism to do it. The land use is a harder nut to crack, but we need to keep at it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think there's a sense as well of some of the things you've been saying and, and some of the examples you have in your book is that, you know, as an ecologist, you're also kind of a gardener, aren't you? And we all know oh, yeah. as gardeners that that we need to nurture and treasure our land and we can't exploit the soil because it will pack up on us. And, and that's obviously what's behind a lot of the rewilding movement, isn't it? Particularly across agricultural farms and wild margins and things. Yeah. Do you, I mean... Do you have one experience from your from your your you know your long working life and your many travels that really stands out for you as a as a moment of revelation or, or of joy that you would want to share with our listeners? Well, there's um, there's there are many, but uh, I did love working in Tajikistan, which is this wild mountainous country um, that extends up to the edge of the river Payanj, which used to be the Oxus, and looks across to the formidable mountains of Afghanistan and there were terrible floods there and the, the people were suffering terribly um, and what they were doing they were cutting everything down for firewood so that there was no nothing to hold the banks and everything was being chopped 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 um, and so the engineers were out there with their steel and their huge lumps of concrete and all that and it wasn't going to work really so it was going to be have to be working with nature and what we did is we did instead of just doing the engineering we did a program working with the communities and the local mayors to plant their own fuel wood plantations of the willows and things which grew very fast in that in the basin of the oxus um, and then they were doing it so that turned it around brilliantly but I, before we leave that one, I've just thought of another little example of, of which tells you why, how much, and it's just a tiny little thing, but it just tells you how um, you can do this because there's this enormous sense of potential love and understanding from lots of people, including local people like the farmers, for nature. And I was working in the English countryside with a farmer and the, the idea with the, meander, the river meander to be filled in with silt, with from, from mud from the river, so it was straighter, and he would get a bit of extra land. And I said, oh, go on, you know, as one always does. It's lovely, just think, can we possibly keep it? And as I said that, the kingfisher, like a spark of blue, flew down the river. And um, the farmer said, you win. And uh, that bird, as I say, sealed our bargain so <laughs> nature is often its own best advocate you know it is it is and farmers get a bad press and they don't always deserve a bad press by any means um for those who've not yet bought the book and we very much hope they will go out and buy the book as a result of, of listening to this to, to the podcast is there a, a a short extract that you could share with us that sort of perhaps encapsulates some of the stories and and, and the book itself certainly i i, I thought of um um and one of the endless projects one, one has uh, had done, but this one is in Bulgaria. And uh, um, I was sent out there to look at the hydropower scheme for a, for a monastery, Rila Monastery, it's quite a famous monastery. And um, uh, it was, we did it well, it was possible to do, like everything else, you can do things well or badly. So we did this, but this bit of writing is something which is very much important in the book in the, I think, 
place and descriptions of place and taking you to places is as important in a book like this as just the um, the arguments you know you really feel it matters if you are there so this is one of many descriptions in the book um, and I shall start Bulgaria diary 2011 Rila Holy Cloister a fortress of God perched high in Bulgarian beech forests, built and extended over a thousand years. A great court contains a church and bell tower, a single stone bowl set high in the mightier bowl of the Balkan mountains. I stepped through an arch, frescoed with cherubim and hung with a crown of elk antlers from the forest. Arcades and balconies encircle an arena paved with river boulders. The smooth grey stones, shaped by the foaming river Rilska and further polished by the tread of generations, fan out and tilt beneath my feet like dolphin backs. The fathers feed me with their justly famous beans and bread and put me in a simple cell with warning that the gates are shut at night. By day, the sun-baked court flutters with a congregation of house martins and echoes to the bubbling of ferny fountains brimmed from the sweetest springs in Bulgaria. At dusk, the bronze Byzantine bell tolls ten o'clock, and from the mountain slopes, cool air slips down, replenishing the empty court like holy water in a basin. The oak and iron gates creak shut, the bolts shoot home. Cats peep like gargoyles, and suddenly the darkening space is filled with screaming, whirling swifts. The perils of the night may seem shut out, but looming round our battlements, the cliffs ascend, fang-like, fantastical, through beech then fir, running with wolves and bears, up to the bald, hermitical peaks where imperial eagles soar. Beyond the circle of the crags, a wider world of tower blocks and airports, all of modern life dissolves into an unimaginable dream, though only an hour's drive away. On every painted wall, the monastery church proclaims apocalypse. And if our fragile cities do succumb to all the prophecies of food and water shortage, these earlier prophets will stonily outstare our glass cap towers. Sufficient with his honey, beans and bread, Rila presents us with a challenge, but also a reassuring vision of the uncertain future. If we continue our unchecked consumption, nature will overwhelm us in a return to the Dark Ages. But the monks have a lesson for our far more complex modern lives. In so many ways, we too can harvest our resources moderately and so preserve a world of use and beauty. Next morning, at their early prayers, the fathers celebrate the place they love and understand so well. The farmers are making hay in the flower-filled meadows. The first tourists arrive and pay for their tickets, while up in the cool forests, the charcoal burners are busy in their little woodland clearings. The house martins are twittering and fussing round the courtyard eaves. Warm coffee steams in the modern monastic kitchen. The gates swing open. 
and I step out into the simple sunshine of a beautiful day. Jeremy, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. And I think we were all transported up that mountain with you. So thank you for sharing that. Um, it sort of kind of preempted my last question, which is, do you have a call to action for, for listeners to the pod? And I think part of that, it was encapsulating what you said about reducing our consumption lifestyles. But is there something you would ask people to do who perhaps don't have the opportunities that you have as an ecologist to go out and make direct changes? What do you think people can do in response? Well, to the other thing people can do, um, apart from just looking at things and thinking about what they see, um, nowadays, they want to look at the labels on the, on the commodities they use. And that's got much, much better. It's always, um, it's always problematic. There's this thing about what does it mean and how do you know? So the small print is always hard work, but you have to start somewhere. So if you do look at the labeling, and I see in today's paper, Unilever are doing stuff on the palm oil with remote sensing and so on. And Greenpeace say it's not quite enough, but, but everywhere, if you start doing that, then um, the pressure is on more and more for producers to produce stuff that is, if you, the purchaser, um, you know, do that, then, then it really can make the difference. All our small actions together will join up and we'll make yeah. change. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us. And, and I encourage everyone to go out and buy your beautiful book and read it. Um, thank you for being part of this series of, of, of Wainwright Podcasts. It's been absolutely lovely chatting to you. Thank you very much indeed. It's been great for me too. You've been listening to Planet Pod in partnership with the Wainwright Prize. Working with Nature by Jeremy Persglove is published by Profile Books and you can find details of it and all the other shortlisted books on the Wainwright Prize website, along with extracts. Or visit our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can catch up on interviews with other shortlisted authors and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to the Stories Behind the Books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our Planet Pod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening.